investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. U.S. Q4 economic growth numbers coming in, a 2.6% annualized figure in the fourth quarter, which is really a Goldilocks number. So we want to compare and contrast that to the Canadian GDP numbers, which clocked in at 0.4% annualized, which is significantly below expectation of a 1% increase and substantially below the U.S. growth numbers of 26 annualized, which was a lot greater than uh, economists expected at uh, 2.2%. And so these have uh, pretty tremendous implications. I mean, on the U.S. side, Trump had the goal of 3% GDP growth. That was his repeated mantra, and it looks like they're really nailing it here. Uh, 2018 was what, 3.1%? Yeah, and so credit where it's due, I guess. Um, And it just goes to show the diverging directions of uh, the Canadian and U.S. economies. Yeah, one major thing to to point towards is the Republican-backed tax cuts. That really put the U.S. into a super growth mode here, where they're really registering great economic numbers. Meanwhile, in Canada, suffering from uh, higher taxes, much poorer business environment. And the numbers that we're seeing out of Canada Economists did expect a slowdown in the fourth quarter due to energy prices really declining late last year, but there were four additional reasons that were displayed in the numbers. Uh, Number one, uh, consumption spending grew at the slowest pace in almost four years. Number two, housing fell by the most in a decade. Number three, business investment dropped sharply for a second straight quarter. And lastly, domestic demand posted its largest decline since 2015. So the Canadian economy just struggling here. I mean, I'm hearing talks about the R word, recession, declining negative growth, potentially. I mean, we'll see. But the major implications are that the Bank of Canada, they're really not going to be raising interest rates this year. And compare that to the U.S., even with great numbers out of there, I don't see them raising rates this year either. Absolutely. And just on your second point there, um, with regards to the housing sector, is that the Canadian struggles in the housing sector are really reinforced by the weakness in the Q4 earnings by the Canadian banks. Um, those have come out over the last little bit and are really just highlighting those uh, those struggles. Yeah, certainly rising interest rates over the past year have had a much bigger impact on the economy than expected. Political scandal worsens for the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So we had Jody Wilson-Raybould testifying in the House of Commons this week with some pretty explosive allegations. And to quote her, she stated that she experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion. What she's referring to here is the government prime minister and other in the prime minister's office, they're attempting or pressuring her to cut a plea deal with Quebec-based SNC-Lavalin. Specifically, SNC-Lavalin is being prosecuted for fraud and bribery charges from a number of years ago. And the prime minister's office was 
pressuring uh, Wilson-Raybould to have them enter a deferred prosecution agreement. So the implications of this, I mean, it does not look good for the prime minister's office. This just reeks of crony capitalism. The public doesn't like it. They don't like favoritism. And this is a, a company, an SNC, that really doesn't need you know, the, the substantial uh, favors and bailouts by the government. Mike, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, and in terms of the public sentiment, is, as Canadians, we typically look at the, uh, the scandals going on south of the border with the current U.S. administration and look, at, look as if we have you know, a sort of moral high ground. I think that's been kind of washed away with this scandal. And, and then in terms of, of SNC-Lavalin, do you see any existential risk there? No, not necessarily. I think they'll be fine. The The threats that they're indicating, they're saying that they need a deferred prosecution agreement. They might be subject to a hostile takeover. They're threatening to leave, uh, move to potentially Europe for their hot head office. But under lo- special loans from the government, they're stuck in Canada until 2024. And in my opinion, no one's going to bid for SNC-Lavalin. I mean, with the with all the problems they have, all the issues, I just don't see them catching a takeover uh, from anyone. Not to mention that they have uh, strong long-term shareholders in the government pension plan. So I don't think that's an issue. But the main implications of this story is that it's potentially toxic for Trudeau's government. There's a Canadian election coming up in October, and the polls say that the rival Conservatives are now leading in the polls. Want to talk about implications? I mean, in terms of economic performance under Trudeau's Liberals, it's been quite negative. They've introduced a carbon tax, they boosted personal income tax, and they boosted corporate tax as well. And the market has not done well under Trudeau's governance. So what we can look forward to as investors, if the polls do indicate some truth to this, that the Conservatives will win in the election, which I think is a relatively high probability. We can look forward to lower income tax, perhaps no carbon tax, and quite certainly lower corporate tax to better compete uh, with the U.S. economy. And so from that, we can ultimately expect uh, higher stock prices, in, in my opinion. President Trump delays tariffs on Chinese goods set to be implemented March 1st. So what was going to happen here was um, the U.S. government had uh, previously indicated that they were going to increase tariffs on a myriad of Chinese goods starting March 1st, 2019, from 10% to 25%, which would have been absolutely devastating for the Chinese economy. Yeah, and at its base, why is the U.S. pursuing these tariffs? So ultimately, the U.S. has had a very large and growing each year trade deficit with the Chinese, and now it's nearly $400 billion. And so the U.S. imports $500 billion in goods uh, from China, and they only export $130 billion to China. And so the U.S. is really demanding wholesale trade and economic reform coming out of China, and they view tariffs as as the best way to utilize that. And, and talking about the trade war, and it, and it is quite the war that they're having here, I think that the U.S. is winning. You can judge by the Chinese stock market versus U.S. market. You can look at the Chinese economic growth numbers, which are really struggling, versus the U.S., which is doing quite fine. And so Trump tweeted last Sunday that they have made substantial progress 
on trade talks, and he is meeting with uh, Chinese President Xi uh, sometime in March at his estate in Mar-a-Lago. So I think market participants can look forward to this trade war getting resolved, and I mean, that's only going to be good for stocks here. And I think the other positive is that Initially, the Trump administration indicated that they would be very hardline in their negotiations. This is indicating some flexibility, showing that there could be room for you know a less extreme deal. Certainly, and thus far, China is committed to buying up to 1.2 trillion in U.S. goods. The only thing that the U.S. really needs to seal up is some sort of guarantee that they're going to follow through with that. Last Saturday, super investor Warren Buffett. Chairman and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway released his annual letter to shareholders. So, like all investors, woke up early Saturday morning to give it a read. To summarize it for you, Buffett was pretty frustrated because it's another year without a so-called elephant-sized acquisition that he's been looking to make for a while now. Their cash balance continues to just pile up. I mean, they have $112 billion in cash. Buffett's looking to do a deal, but he really can't find um, a large acquisition that's, that really fits his mandate of being attractively priced. Some other salient, salient points from uh, the letter. Uh, number one, uh, Berkshire is now moving from a book value to market value in terms of measuring success of the company. Number two, Uh, they had to implement a new accounting change, which takes into account the quarterly changes in the value of their equity portfolio flowing to the bottom line of their net income. So you're going to start to see highly volatile uh, profit and loss figures uh, out of Berkshire on a go-forward basis. And lastly, a continued commitment to share repurchases, which Berkshire really just started doing recently. Right, Mike? Yeah, and in terms of those points, what I found interesting and a little bit ironic, actually, is his discussion of uh, acquisitions and the saying that the thinking that thinking of it causes his pulse rate to soar. And in terms of value investment managers, they typically are quite critical of CEOs that are acquisition hungry. So I think this kind of highlights a behavioral bias that even the Oracle of Omaha isn't immune to. Yeah, he certainly loves to do deals. And a quote from Buffett here, he claims that prices are sky high for businesses possessing decent long-term prospects. And to quote what you said, he said, just writing about the possibility of a huge purchase has caused my pulse rate to soar. So Buffett certainly looking for a good deal. They have a lot of cash, but for right now, he believes stocks offers far better value for their money than purchasing large businesses outright. And also, I think there's just a disconnect in terms of how the market views Berkshire and how Buffett does. Buffett views Berkshire as more the operating businesses um, with a stock portfolio on top of that, whereas I think the market really focuses on his stock picking. And that's really where the disconnect is on his view of the accounting changes and how they're affecting Berkshire, is I think it is fair to look at how his investments are faring in terms of the overall gap earnings, but obviously he disagrees. Barrett Gold launches an $18 billion hostile bid for Newmont Mining. This deal is somewhat unprecedented in my opinion in that number one, it's a all share hostile deal, and those are pretty rare. And number two, 
It is a no premium hostile deal. And by premium, I'm discussing, I'm referring to a takeover price that is in excess of the current market price or what you could currently sell your Newmont shares. And what Barrick is offering uh, on an unsolicited basis, that means not supported by Newmont management, what they just went out and offered Newmont shareholders is an exchange ratio of 2.5694 Barrick shares for each Newmont share. I checked out the prices today where Barrick is trading implies a share consideration for Newmont of $31.58 versus, you compare that versus Newmont's current price, it's $33.82. So currently Barrick consideration is 7% below the Newmont share price. So in my opinion, this hostile bid really faces a little chance of success. And to make things worse, uh, the Financial Times today had a Barrick CEO indicating that they do not plan on increasing the hostile offers. So in my opinion, this bid is just dead in the water and stands very, very little chance of success. Yeah, and in terms of the party line, in terms of the uh, take under price at the actual discount, is that the premium is in the synergies. And so what, what do you think Barrick's play is here? Do you think it's to bump the share price after and uh, try, to get, try to get shareholders to approve it? That is the typical, typical game plan, but with the Barrick CEO coming out and announcing that they absolutely do not plan on increasing the consideration, I don't really understand what their strategy is here. It seems like a bitter clash of egos in a pretty epic battle to create the world's largest gold producer. And referring to those synergies, uh, Newmont agrees that there are some synergies available, but these could be just as easily, if perhaps even more easily, attained through a simple joint venture of their assets in Nevada. You don't need to create this massive gold mining conglomerate. Um, you can just do a simple deal with just the Nevada assets. So I think there's a lot of ego coming into play here, and I just don't think it's going to be successful. And in terms of the ego and rhetoric, Mark Bristow, the CEO of, of Barrick, he actually described Newmont's bid for Gold Corp as desperate and bizarre. You could arguably say that uh, that their move on Newmont is also desperate and bizarre. Yeah, well, I'll quote Newmont saying that Barrick has a, quote, poor track record on delivering shareholder returns. So there it is, uh, a bitter battle of words in this uh, hostile takeover. Ridesharing company Lyft filing for an IPO, valuing the company at 20 to 25 billion dollars. As you can recall, last June, Lyft raised around 600 million dollars at a 15 billion dollar valuation. So they plan on going public on the NASDAQ, unsurprisingly under the ticker LYFT, Lyft. Mike, what are your thoughts on this deal? So this is really just them trying to get their IPO ahead of their main competitor, Uber, who is valued at 76 billion. Um, the, the IPO is being led by JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, and uh, Jefferies. If you look at their financials, they're, they're pretty ugly. Uh, they've had a net loss of $900 million in 2018 on revenue of $2.2 billion. You know, massive losses and really just being subsidized by venture capitalists. And if you look at it in terms of IPO investing in general, uh, Bloomberg quotes that U.S. firms that have IPO'd in the last 12 months have returned about 22%. That's versus the total return of 6% for the S&P 500. So it does lend some credence into investing into IPOs. 
I just don't know whether I would be investing in this one. Exactly. I typically stay away from IPOs. So ladies and gents, just remember IPO sometimes stands for it's probably overpriced. Put out a blog post this week called how multi-billion dollar endowments are investing their money. So the NACUBO released a study on endowments. Specifically, they took a poll of 802 U.S. college and university endowments and foundations. So this represented over $600 billion in professionally managed financial assets. So some interesting figures here. Endowments of over $1 billion in assets had 58% of their assets in alternative strategies. And by alternative investment strategies, we're talking private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, private real estate, energy, and lastly, distressed debt. Compare and contrast that to the smallest of endowments being under $25 million. They only had 11% of their assets in alternative strategies. All in, on a dollar-weighted basis, endowments in the study had more than half, or 53% of their assets in alternative strategies. But why do endowments allocate so heavily to alternatives? You may hear of the standard uh, 60-40 equity bond portfolio, but endowments are investing dramatically different than that. So they're looking to allocate to alternatives because they have uh, pretty aggressive return targets that they need to achieve in order to satisfy their spending obligations. So they look to, to allocate two alternatives pretty much for three main reasons. Number one, they're, they're aiming for increased returns. Number two, with managed risk. And then lastly, uh, higher consistency. So ultimately, endowments are using alternative strategies to increase their portfolio returns on a risk-adjusted basis. Now we'll get to some reader questions. Mike, what do we got this week? So first, what's a hostile takeover and how does it work? So with all the news out of Barrick and Newmont and hostile takeovers, I figured it's worthwhile explaining what is going on. So hostile, it means when the management of the target company does not support a deal with the company trying to make the acquisition. And so uh, they typically refer it on a buyer's side as being unsolicited, but it typically is not friendly. What the acquirer does is they, they take the offer directly to the target company's shareholders since the target company's management and board of directors are uninterested or perhaps even stonewalling the acquirer. So they believe that if they put an attractive offer on the table and they can get the target shareholders on side, then they can seal up the deal. Now, these are quite a bit easier to execute in Canada. In the US, they have what's called a poison pill, which is a legal strategy to effectively stonewall a potential acquirer, uh, and the shareholders just aren't allowed to make a decision on the hostile bid, or they'll be uh, massively diluted through this through this uh, shareholder rights plan or a poison pill, as it's also known as. But in Canada, the courts typically strike down this legal strategy known as a poison pill and allow the acquirer to take the offer directly to shareholders. Now, typically, a hostile takeover would have a pretty significant premium over the, the market price of the shares, such that shareholders will be incentivized to tender their shares and um, not just sell them in the market. And so the goal is uh, the acquirer is looking to uh, buy a target without support 
of the uh, target board and management. But typically what happens is that uh, the target company puts itself up for sale, also known in industry language as exploring strategic alternatives, in which they hope to solicit higher offers for the company from other competing acquirers. And in terms of investors who invest in these deals, also known as uh, merger arbitragers, the absolute dream scenario for them is a competitive uh, bidding scenario where you have the hostile acquirer and a higher bid from what we call a white knight or a friendly acquirer that the target finds through its sale process that wants to uh, buy them on a friendly basis. So if you can get a bidding war with higher and higher prices for the target as a merger arbitrager or investor in the target company, that is really uh, what you live for and where the real big returns come from. How we see these situations typically playing out, either the acquirer gets stonewalled and gives up, or they enter into friendly discussions with the target after increasing their bid uh, to get the board on side and ultimately support a friendly deal on the two companies. Now, one thing that you mentioned earlier was in Barrick's bid for Newmont is that the use of shares as opposed to cash is uncommon. Why is that? Well, shareholders, it's like the the quote from that movie, uh, show me the money. And so they like saying cold, hard cash. Shares are not certain in value. I mean, they're moving around every second of every day as they trade in the market. And who knows, after the deal closes, they could drop precipitously. And so they like to see cold, hard cash. They like to see a large premium. So if you want to increase the chance of success on a hostile takeover, pay a large premium. That is a large increase over the over the last market price. And, and number two, just have a lot of cash within that bid. And so that's it, ladies and gents. We hope you enjoyed episode three. And we look forward to hearing from you. Give us a rating on on Apple iTunes or submit a question to us on Twitter. We'll chat later. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.